The First Book of Lucian's True History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Terry Cronin Lucian's True History by Lucian of Samosata Translated by Francis Hicks The First Book even as champions and wrestlers and such as practice the strength and agility of body are not only careful to retain a sound constitution of health and to hold on to their ordinary course of exercise, but sometimes also to recreate themselves with seasonable intermission and esteem it as a main point of their practice, so I think it necessary for scholars and such as addict themselves to the study of learning, after they have traveled long in the perusal of serious authors, to relax a little in the intention of their thoughts, that they may be more apt and more able to endure a continued course of study. And this kind of repose will be the more conformable, and fit their purpose better, if it be employed in the reading of such works as shall yield not only a bare content by the pleasing and comely composure of them, but shall also give occasion of some learned speculation to the mind, which I suppose I have effected in these books of mine wherein not only the novelty of the subject, nor the pleasingness of the project, may tickle the reader with delight, nor to hear so many notorious lies delivered persuasively and in the way of truth, but because everything here by me set down doth in a comical fashion glance at some or other of the old poets, historiographers, and philosophers, which in their writings have recorded many monstrous and intolerable untruths, whose names I would have quoted down, but that I knew the reading would bewray them to you. Theseus, the son of Theseochus the Nidian, wrote of the region of the Indians and the state of those countries, matters which he neither saw himself nor ever heard come from the mouth of any man. Iambulus also wrote many strange miracles of the great sea, which all men knew to be lies and fictions, yet so composed that they want not their delight. And many others have made choice of the like argument, of which some have published their own travels and peregrinations, wherein they have described the greatness of beasts, the fierce condition of men, with their strange and uncouth manner of life. But the first father and founder of all this foolery was Homer's Ulysses, who tells a long tale to Alcinous of the servitude of the winds, and of the wild men with one eye in their foreheads that fed upon raw flesh, of beasts with many heads, and the transformation of his friends by enchanted potions, all of which he made the silly Faikis believe for great sooth. This coming to my perusal, I could not condemn ordinary men for lying, when I saw it in request among those that will be counted philosophical persons. Yet could not but wonder at them that, writing so manifest lies, they should not think to be taken with the manner. And this made me also ambitious to leave some monument of myself behind me, that I might not be the only man exempted from this liberty of lying. And because I had no matter of verity to employ my pen in, for nothing hath befallen me worth the writing, I turned my style to publish untruths, but with an honester mind than others have done. For this one thing I confidently pronounce for a truth, that I lie. And this, I hope, may be an excuse for all the rest, when I confess what I am faulty in. For I write of matters which I neither saw, nor suffered, nor heard by report from others which are in no being, nor possible ever to have a beginning. Let no man, therefore, in any case, give credit to them. 
disanchoring on a time from the pillars of Hercules, the wind fitting me well for my purpose, I thrust into the West Ocean. The occasion that moved me to take such a voyage in hand was only a curiosity of mine, a desire of novelties, and a longing to learn out the bounds of the ocean and what people inhabit the farther shore, for which purpose I made plentiful provision of victuals and fresh water, got fifty companions of the same humor to associate me in my travels, furnished myself with store of munition, gave a round sum of money to an expert pilot that could direct us in our course, and new-rigged and repaired a tall ship strongly to hold a tedious and difficult journey. Thus sailed we forward a day and a night with a prosperous wind, and as long as we had any sight of land, made no great haste on our way. But the next morrow, about sunrising, the wind blew high, and the waves began to swell, and the darkness fell upon us, so that we could not see to strike our sails, but gave our ship over to the wind and weather. Thus were we tossed in this tempest the space of threescore and nineteen days together. On the fourscorth day the sun upon a sudden break out, and we descried, not far off, an island full of mountains and woods, about the which the seas did not rage so boisterously, for the storm was now reasonably well calmed. There we thrust in and went on shore and cast ourselves upon the ground, and so lay a long time, as utterly tired with our misery at sea. In the end we arose up and divided ourselves. Thirty we left to guard our ship. Myself and twenty more went to discover the island, and had not gone above three furlongs from the sea through a wood, where we saw a brazen pillar erected, whereon Greek letters were engraven, though now much worn and hard to be discerned, importing, Thus far travelled Hercules and Bacchus. There were also, near unto the place, two portraitures cut out in a rock, the one of the quantity of an acre of ground, the other less, which made me imagine the lesser to be Bacchus and the other Hercules, and giving them due adoration, we proceeded on our journey, and far had we not gone but we came to a river, the stream whereof seemed to run with as rich wine as any is made in Chios, and of a great breadth, in some places able to bear a ship, which made me to give the more credit to the inscription upon the pillar, when I saw such apparent signs of Bacchus's peregrination. We then resolved to travel up the stream, to find whence the river had his original, and when we were come to the head, no spring at all appeared, but mighty great vine-trees of infinite number, which from their roots distilled pure wine which made the river run so abundantly. The stream was also well stored with fish, of which we took a few, in taste and color much resembling wine, but as many as eight of them fell drunk upon it. For when they were opened and cut up, we found them to be full of lees. Afterwards we mixed some fresh-water fish with them, which allayed the strong taste of the wine. We then crossed the stream where we found it passable, and came among a world of vines of incredible number, which towards the earth had firm stalks and of a good growth. But the tops of them were women from the hip upwards, having all their proportion perfect and complete. As painters picture out Daphne, who was turned into a tree when she was overtaken by Apollo, at their fingers' ends sprung out branches full of grapes, and the hair of their heads was nothing else but winding wires and leaves and clusters of grapes. When we were come to them, they saluted us and joined hands with us, and spake unto us some in the Lydian and some in the Indian language, but most of them in Greek. They also kissed us with their mouths, but he that was so kissed felt drunk, and was not his own man a good while after that. They could not abide to have any fruit pulled from them, but would roar and cry out pitifully if any man offered it. Some of them desired to have carnal mixture with us, and two of our company were so bold as to entertain their offer, and could never afterwards be loosed from them, but were knit fast together at their nether parts, from whence they grew together and took root together, 
and their fingers began to spring out with branches and crooked wires as if they were ready to bring out fruit. Whereupon we forsook them and fled to our ships, and told the company at our coming what had betide unto us, how our fellows were entangled, and of their copulation with the vines. Then we took certain of our vessels and filled them, some with water and some with wine out of the river, and lodged for that night near the shore. On the morrow we put to sea again, the wind serving us weakly, but about noon, when we had lost sight of the island, upon a sudden a whirlwind caught us, which turned our ship round about and lifted us up some three thousand furlongs into the air and suffered us not to settle down again into the sea, but we hung above ground and were carried aloft with a mighty wind which filled our sails strongly. Thus for seven days' space and so many nights were we driven along in that manner, and on the eighth day we came in view of a great country in the air, like to a shining island, of a round proportion, gloriously glittering with light, and approaching to it, we there arrived and took land, and surveying the country, we found it to be both inhabited and husbanded. And as long as the day lasted, we could see nothing there, but when night was come, many other islands appeared unto us, some greater and some less, all of the color of fire, and another kind of earth underneath, in which were cities and seas and rivers and woods and mountains, which we conjectured to be the earth by us inhabited. And going further into the land, we were met withal, and taken by those kind of people which they call Hippogyptians. These Hippogyptians are men riding upon monstrous vultures, which they use instead of horses, for the vultures there are exceedingly great, every one with three heads apiece. You may imagine their greatness by this, for every feather in their wings was bigger and longer than the mast of a tall ship. Their charge was to fly about the country, and all the strangers they found to bring them to the king, and their fortune was then to seize upon us, and by them we were presented to him. As soon as he saw us, he conjectured by our habit what countrymen we were, and said, Are you not strangers, Grecians? Which then we affirmed, and... And how could you make way, said he, through so much air as to get hither? Then we delivered the whole discourse of our fortunes to him, whereupon he began to tell us likewise of his own adventures, how that he also was a man, by name Endymion, and wrapped up long since from the earth, as he was asleep, and brought hither, where he was made king of the country, and said it was that region which to us below seemed to be the moon. But he bade us be of good cheer and fear no danger, for we should want nothing we stood in need of. And if the war he was now in hand with all against the sons succeeded fortunately, we should live with him in the highest degree of happiness. Then we asked him what enemies he had, and the cause of the quarrel. And he answered, Phaeton, the king of the inhabitants of the sun, for that is also peopled as well as the moon, hath made war against us a long time upon this occasion. I once assembled all the poor people and needy persons within my dominions, purposing to send a colony to inhabit the morning star, because the country was desert and had nothing dwelling in it. This Phaeton envying, crossed me in my design, and sent his Hippomyrix to meet with us in the midway, by whom we were surprised at that time, being not prepared for an encounter, and were forced to retire. Now, therefore, my purpose is once again to denounce war and publish a plantation of people there. If, therefore, you will participate with us in our expedition, I will furnish you every one with a prime vulture, and all armor answerable for service, for tomorrow we must set forwards. With all our hearts, said I, if it please you. Then we were feasted and abode with them, and in the morning arose to set ourselves in order for battle, for our scouts had given us knowledge that the enemy was at hand. Our forces in number amounted to a hundred thousand, besides such bare burthens and engineers, and the foot forces and the strange aids. Of these, fourscore thousand were Hippogyptians, 
and twenty thousand that rode upon lachanopters, which is a mighty great fowl, and instead of feathers covered thick over with wort leaves, but their wing feathers were much like the leaves of lettuces. After them were placed the Syncrobolians and the Scorodomachians. There came also to aid us from the bare star thirty thousand Silotoxitons and fifty thousand Anadermonians. These Silotoxitons ride upon great fleas, of which they have their denomination, for every flea among them is as big as a dozen elephants. The Anadermonians are footmen, yet flew in the air without feathers in this manner. Every man had a large mantle reaching down to his foot, which the wind blowing against filled it like a sail, and they were carried along as if they had been boats. The most part of these in fight were targeteers. It was also said that there were expected from the stars over Cappadocia threescore and ten thousand Struthobalanians and five thousand Hippogeranians, but I had no sight of them, for they were not yet come, and therefore I durst write nothing, though wonderful and incredible reports were given out of them. This was the number of Endymion's army. The furniture was all alike, their helmets of bean hulls, which are great with them and very strong, their breastplates all of lupins cut into scales, for they take the shells of lupins and, fastening them together, make breastplates of them which are impenetrable and as hard as any horn. Their shields and swords like to ours in Greece. And when the time of battle was come, they were ordered in this manner. The right wing was supplied by the Hippogyppians, where the king himself was in person with the choicest soldiers in the army, among whom were also ranged the Lachanopters made the left wing, and the A's were placed in the main battle as every man's fortune fell. The foot, which in number were about six thousand myriads, were disposed of in this manner. There are many spiders in those parts, of mighty bigness, every one in quantity exceeding one of the island Cyclades. These were appointed to spin a web in the air between the moon and the morning star, which was done in an instant, and made a plain champagne upon which the foot forces were planted, who had for their leader Nycterion, the son of Eudiniax, and two other associates. But of the enemy's side, the left wing consisted of the Hippomyrix, and among them Phaethon himself. These are beasts of huge bigness and winged, carrying the resemblance of our emmets, but for their greatness. For those of the largest size were of the quantity of two acres, and not only the riders supplied the place of soldiers, but they also did much mischief with their horns. They were a number fifty thousand. In the right wing were ranged the Araconopes, of which there were about fifty thousand, all archers riding upon great gnats. Then followed the Aerocardics, who were lightly armed and footmen, but good soldiers, casting out of slings afar off huge great turnips, and whosoever was hit with them lived not long, but died with the stink that proceeded from their wounds. It is said they used to anoint their bullets with the poison of mallows. After them were placed the Colomycetes, men-at-arms and good at hand-strokes, in number about fifty thousand. They are called Colomycetes because their shields were made of mushrooms, and their spears were of the stalks of the herb asparagus. Near them were placed the Sinobalanians, that were sent from the dog-star to aid him. These were men with dogs' faces, riding upon winged acorns. But the slingers that should have come out of Via Lactea and the Nephilocentaurs came too short of these aids, for the battle was done before their arrival, so that they did them no good. And indeed the slingers came not at all. Wherefore they say Phaethon in displeasure overran their country. These were the forces that Phaethon brought into the field. And when they were joined in battle, after the signal was given, and when the asses on either side had brayed, for these are to them instead of trumpets, the fight began. And the left wing of the Heliotans, or sun-soldiers, 
fled presently and would not abide to receive the charge of the Hippogippians, but turned their backs immediately, and many were put to the sword. But the right wing of theirs were too hard for our left wing, and drove them back until they came to our footmen, who, joining with them, made the enemies there also turn their backs and fly, especially when they found their own left wing to be overthrown. Thus were they wholly discomfited on all hands. Many were taken prisoners, and many slain. Much blood was spilt. Some fell upon the clouds, which made them look of a red color, as sometimes they appear to us about sunsetting. Some dropped down upon the earth, which made me suppose it was upon some such occasion that Homer thought Jupiter rained blood for the death of his son Sarpedon. Returning from the pursuit, we erected two trophies, one for the fight on foot, which we placed upon the spider's web, the other for the fight in the air, which we set up upon the clouds. As soon as this was done, news came to us by our scouts that the Nephilocentaurs were coming on, which indeed should have come to Phaethon before the fight. And when they drew so near unto us that we could take full view of them, it was a strange sight to behold such monsters, composed of flying horses and men. That part which resembled mankind, which was from the waist upwards, did equal in greatness the Rhodian Colossus. And that which was like a horse was as big as a great ship of burden, and of such multitude that I feared to set down their number, lest it might be taken for a lie. And for their leader they had the Sagittarius out of the Zodiac. When they heard that their friends were foiled, they sent a messenger to Phaethon to renew the fight. Whereupon they set themselves in array, and fell upon the Silvanitans, or the moon soldiers, that were troubled, and disordered in following the chase, and scattered in gathering the spoils, and put them all to flight, and pursued the king into his city, and killed the greatest part of his birds, overturned the trophies he had set up, and overcame the whole country that was spun by the spiders. Myself and two of my companions were taken alive. When Phaethon himself was come, they set up other trophies in token of victory, and on the morrow we were carried prisoners into the sun, our arms bound behind us with a piece of the cobweb. Yet would they by no means lay siege to the city, but returned and built up a wall in the midst of the air to keep the light of the sun from falling upon the moon. And they made it a double wall, wholly compact of clouds, so that a manifest eclipse of the moon ensued, and all things detained in perpetual night, wherewith Endymion was so much oppressed that he sent ambassadors to entreat the demolishing of the building, and beseech him that he would not damn them to live in darkness, promising to pay him tribute, to be his friend and associate, and never after to stir against him. Phaethon's council twice assembled to consider upon this offer, and in their first meeting would remit nothing of their conceived displeasure. But on the morrow they altered their minds to these terms. The Heliotans and their colleagues have made a peace with the Silonitans and their associates upon these conditions, that the Heliotans shall cast down the wall, and deliver the prisoners that they have taken upon a rateable ransom, and that the Silonitans should leave the other stars at liberty, and raise no war against the Heliotans, but aid and assist one another if either of them should be invaded, that the king of the Silonitans should yearly pay to the king of the Heliotans in way of tribute ten thousand vessels of dew, and deliver ten thousand of their people to be pledges for their fidelity, that the colony to be sent to the morning star should be jointly supplied by them both, and liberty given to any else that would be sharers in it. That these articles of peace should be engraven in a pillar of amber to be erected in the midst of the air upon the confines of their country, for the performance whereof were sworn the Heliotans, Pyronides, and Therites, and Flodius, and of the Silvanitans, Nictor, and Menius, and Polylampes. Thus was the peace concluded, the wall immediately demolished, and we that were prisoners delivered. Being returned into the moon, they came forth to meet us, 
Endymion himself, and all his friends, who embraced us with tears, and desired us to make our abode with them, and to be partners in the colony, promising to give me his own son in marriage, for there were no women amongst them, which I by no means would yield unto, but desired of all loves to be dismissed again into the sea, and he, finding it impossible to persuade us to his purpose, after seven days' feasting, gave us leave to depart. Now, what strange novelties worthy of note I observed during the time of my abode there, I will relate unto you. The first is, that they are not begotten of women, but of mankind, for they have no other marriage but of males. The name of women is utterly unknown among them. Until they accomplish the age of five and twenty years, they are given in marriage to others. From that time forwards they take others in marriage to themselves, for as soon as the infant is conceived, the leg begins to swell, and afterwards, when the time of birth is come, they give it a lance and take it out dead. Then they lay it abroad with open mouth towards the wind, and so it takes life. And I think thereof the Grecians call it the belly of the leg, because therein they bear their children instead of a belly. I will tell you now of a thing more strange than this. There are a kind of men among them called dentritons, which are begotten in this manner. They cut out the right stone out of a man's cod, and set it in their ground, from which springeth up a great tree of flesh with branches and leaves, bearing a kind of fruit much like to an acorn, but of a cubit in length, which they gather when they are ripe, and cut men out of them. Their privy members are to be set on and taken off as they have occasion. Rich men have them made of ivory, poor men of wood, wherewith they perform the act of generation and accompany their spouses. When a man is come to his full age, he dieth not, but is dissolved like smoke, and is turned into air. One kind of food is common to them all, for they kindle a fire and broil frogs upon the coals, which are with them in infinite numbers flying in the air. And whilst they are broiling, they sit round about them as if it were about a table, and lap up the smoke that riseth from them, and feast themselves therewith. And this is all their feeding. For their drink they have air beaten in a mortar, which yieldeth a kind of moisture much like unto dew. They have no avoidance of excrements, either of urine or dung, neither have they any issue for that purpose like unto us. Their boys admit copulation, not like unto ours, but in their hams, a little above the calf of the leg, for there they are open. They hold it a great ornament to be bald, for hairy persons are abhorred with them, and yet among the stars that are comets it is thought commendable, as some that have travelled those coasts reported unto us. Such beards as they have are growing a little above their knees. They have no nails on their feet, for their whole foot is all but one toe. Every one of them, at the point of his rump, hath a long colewort growing out instead of a tail, always green and flourishing, which, though a man fall upon his back, cannot be broken. The dropping of their noses is more sweet than honey. When they labor or exercise themselves, they anoint their body with milk, wherein, too, if a little of that honey chance to drop, it will be turned into cheese. They make very fat oil of their beans, and as of a delicate a savor as any sweet ointment. They have many vines in those parts which yield them but water, for the grapes that hang upon the clusters are like our hailstones. And I verily think that when the vines there are shaken with a strong wind, there falls a storm of hail amongst us by the breaking down of those kind of berries. Their bellies stand them instead of satchels, to put in their necessaries, which they may open and shut at their pleasure, for they have neither liver nor any kind of entrails, only they are rough and hairy within so that when their young children are cold, they may be enclosed therein to keep them warm. The rich men have garments of glass, very soft and delicate, the poorer sort of brass woven, 
whereof they have great plenty, which they enseam with water to make it fit for the workmen, as we do our wool. If I should write what manner of eyes they have, I doubt I should be taken for a liar in publishing a matter so incredible. Yet I cannot choose but tell it. For they have eyes to take in and take out as please themselves. And when a man is so disposed, he may take them out and lay them by till he have occasion to use them, and then put them in and see again. Many, when they have lost their own eyes, borrow of others, for the rich have many lying by them. Their ears are all made of the leaves of plane trees, excepting those that come of acorns, for they only have them made of wood. I also saw another strange thing in the same court, a mighty great glass lying upon the top of a pit of no great depth, whereinto, if any man descend, he shall hear everything that is spoken upon the earth. If he but look into the glass, he shall see all cities and all nations, as well as if he were among them. There had I the sight of all my friends in the whole country about. Whether they saw me or not, I cannot tell. But if they believe it not to be so, let them take the pains to go thither themselves, and they shall find my words true. Then we took our leaves of the king, and such as were near him, and took shipping, and departed. At which time Endymion bestowed upon me two mantles made of their glass, and five of brass, with a complete armor of those shells of lupins, all which I left behind me in the whale, and sent with us a thousand of his Hippogippians to conduct us five hundred furlongs on our way. In our course we coasted many other countries, and lastly arrived at the Morning Star, now newly inhabited, where we landed and took in fresh water. From thence we entered the Zodiac, passing by the sun, and leaving it on our right hand, took our course near unto the shore, but landed not in the country, though our company did much desire it, for the wind would not give us leave. But we saw it was a flourishing region, fat and well-watered, abounding with all delights. But the Nephilocentaurs espying us, who were mercenary soldiers to Phaethon, made to our ship as fast as they could, and finding us to be friends, said no more unto us, for our Hippogippians were departed before. Then we made forwards all the next night and day, and about evening tide following we came to a city called Lycnopolis, still holding on our course downwards. This city is seated in the air between the Pleiades and the Hyades, somewhat lower than the Zodiac, and arriving there not a man was to be seen, but lights in great numbers running to and fro, which were employed, some in the marketplace, and some about the haven, of which many were little, and as a man may say, but poor things. Some again were great and mighty, exceeding glorious and resplendent, and there were places of receipt for them all. Every man had his name as well as men, and we did hear them speak. They did us no harm, but invited us to feast with them. Yet we were so fearful that we durst neither eat nor sleep as long as we were there. Their court of justice standeth in the midst of the city, where the governor sitteth all the night long, calling every one by name, and he that answereth not is a judge to die, as if he had forsaken his ranks. Their death is to be quenched. We also standing among them saw what was done and heard what answers the lights made for themselves and the reasons they alleged for tarrying so long. There we also knew our own light and spake unto it and questioned it of our affairs at home and how all did there, which related everything unto us. That night we made our abode there and on the next morrow returned to our ship and sailing near under the clouds had a sight of the city Nephilococagia, which we beheld with great wonder but entered not into it for the wind was against us. The king thereof was Coronus, the son of Cataphion, and I could not choose but think upon the poet Aristophanes, how wise a man he was, and how true a reporter, and how little cause there is to question his fidelity for what he hath written.
The third after, the ocean appeared plainly unto us, though we could see no land but what was in the air, and those countries also seemed to be fiery and of a glittering color. The fourth day, about noon, the wind gently forbearing, settled us fairly and leisurely onto the sea, and as soon as we found ourselves upon water, we were surprised with incredible gladness, and our joy was unexpressible. We feasted and made merry with such provision as we had. We cast ourselves into the sea and swam up and down for our disport, for it was a calm. But oftentimes it falleth out that the change to the better is the beginning of greater evils. For when we had made only two days' sail in the water, as soon as the third day appeared, about sunrising, upon a sudden we saw many monstrous fishes and whales, but one above the rest, containing in greatness fifteen hundred furlongs, which came gaping upon us and troubled the sea around and about him, so that he was compassed on every side with froth and foam, showing his teeth afar off, which were longer than any beech trees are with us, all as sharp as needles and as white as ivory. Then we took, as we thought, our last leaves of one another, and embracing together, expected our ending day. The monster was presently with us, and swallowed us up, ship and all. But by chance he caught us not between his chops, for the ship slipped through the void passages down into his entrails. When we were thus got within him, we continued a good while in darkness, and could see nothing, till he began to gape and then we perceived it to be a monstrous whale of a huge breadth and height, big enough to contain a city that would hold ten thousand men. And within we found small fishes and many other creatures chopped in pieces, and the masts of ships and anchors and bones of men and luggage. In the midst of him was earth and hills, which were raised, as I conjectured, by the settling of the mud which came down his throat, for woods grew upon them and trees of all sort and all manner of herbs. And it looked as if it had been husbanded. The compass of the land was two hundred and forty furlongs. There were also to be seen all kind of sea-fowl, as gulls, halcyons, and others that had made their nests upon the trees. Then we fell to weeping abundantly, but at the last I roused up my company, and propped up our ship and struck fire. Then we made ready supper of such as we had, for abundance of all sort of fish lay ready by us, and we had yet water enough left, which we brought out of the morning star. The next morrow we rose to watch when the whale should gape, and then, looking out, we could sometimes see mountains, sometimes only the skies, and many times islands, for we found that the fish carried himself with great swiftness to every part of the sea. When we grew weary of this, I took seven of my company and went into the wood to see what I could find there, and we had not gone above five furlongs, but we lied upon a temple erected to Neptune, as by the title appeared, and not far off we espied many sepulchres and pillars placed upon them with a fountain of clear water close unto it. We also heard the barking of a dog, and saw smoke rise afar off, so that we judged there was some dwelling thereabout. Wherefore, making the more haste, we lighted upon an old man and a youth, who were very busy in making a garden, and in conveying water by a channel from the fountain into it. Whereupon we were surprised, both with joy and fear. And they also were brought into the same taking, and for a long time remained mute. But after some pause, the old man said, What are ye, ye strangers? Any of the sea spirits, or miserable men like unto us? For we that are men by nature, born and bred in the earth, are now sea dwellers, and swim up and down within the continent of this whale, and know not certainly what to think of ourselves. We are like to men that be dead, and yet believe ourselves to be alive. Whereunto I answered, For our parts, father, we are men also, newly come hither and swallowed up ship and all but yesterday. 
and now come purposely within this wood, which is so large and thick. Some good angel, I think, did guide us hither to have the sight of you, and to make us know that we are not the only men confined within this monster. Tell us, therefore, your fortunes, we beseech you, what you are, and how you came into this place. But he answered, You shall not hear a word from me, nor ask any more questions until you have taken part of such viands as we are able to offer you. So he took us and brought us into his house, which was sufficient to serve his turn. His pallets were prepared, and all things else made ready. Then he set before us herbs and nuts and fish, and filled out of his own wine unto us. And when we were sufficiently satisfied, he then demanded of us what fortunes we had endured. And I related all things to him in order that had betide unto us, the tempest, the passages in the island, our navigation in the air, our war, and all the rest, even till our diving into the whale. Whereat he wondered exceedingly, and began to deliver also what had befallen to him, and said, By lineage, O ye strangers, I am of the isle Cyprus, and travelling from mine own country as a merchant, with this my son you see here, and many other friends with me, made a voyage for Italy in a great ship full fraught with merchandise, which perhaps you have seen broken to pieces in the mouth of the whale. We sailed with fair weather till we were as far as Sicily, but then we were overtaken with such a boisterous storm that the third day we were driven into the ocean, where it was our fortune to meet with this whale, which swallowed us all up, and only we two escaped with our lives. All the rest perished, whom we have here buried and built a temple to Neptune. Ever since we have continued this course of life, planting herbs and feeding upon fish and nuts. Here is wood enough, you see, and plenty of vines which yield most delicate wine. We also have a well of excellent cool water, which may be you have seen. We make our beds of the leaves of trees and burn as much wood as we will. We chase after the birds that fly about us and go out upon the gills of the monster to catch after live fishes. Here we bathe ourselves when we are disposed, for we have a lake of salt water not far off, about some twenty furlongs in compass, full of sundry sorts of fish, in which we swim out and sail upon it in a little boat of mine own making. This is the seven-and-twentieth year of our drowning, and with all this we might be well enough contented if our neighbors and borderers about us were not perverse and troublesome, altogether insociable and made of stern condition. Is it so indeed, said I, that there should be any within the whale but yourselves? Many, said he, and such as are unreconcilable towards strangers, and of monstrous and deformed proportions. The western countries and the tail part of the wood are inhabited by the Terracanians that look like eels with faces like a lobster. These are warlike, fierce, and feed upon raw flesh. They that dwell towards the right side are called Tritonomendatans, which have their upper parts like unto men, their lower parts like cats, and are less offensive than the rest. On the right side inhabit the Carcinocarians, and the Thinocephalians, which are in league with one another. The middle region is possessed by the Pagoridians and the Cetipodians, a warlike nation and swift of foot. Eastward toward the mouth is for the most part desert, as overwashed by the sea. Yet I am fain to take that for my dwelling, paying yearly to the Cetipodians in way of tribute five hundred oysters. Of so many nations doth this country consist. We must, therefore, devise among ourselves either how to be able to fight with them, or how to live among them. What number may they all amount to? said I. More than a thousand, said he. And what armor have they? None at all, said he, but the bones of fishes. Then it were our best course, said I, to encounter them, being provided as we are, and they without weapons. For if we prove too hard for them, we shall afterward live out of fear. 
This we concluded upon, and went to our ship to furnish ourselves with arms. The occasion of war we gave by non-payment of tribute, which then was due, for they sent their messengers to demand it, to whom he gave a harsh and scornful answer, and sent them packing with their errant. But the Cetopodians and Pagaridians, taking it ill at the hands of Cintharus, for so was the man named, came against us with great tumult, and we, suspecting what they would do, stood upon our guard to wait for them, and laid five and twenty of our men in ambush, commanding them as soon as the enemy was passed by to set upon them, who did so, and arose out of their ambush and fell upon the rear, we also being five and twenty in number, for Cintharus and his son were marshaled among us, advanced to meet them, and encountered them with great courage and strength, but in the end we put them to flight, and pursued them to their very dens. Of the enemies were slain an hundred threescore and ten, and but one of us, besides Trigles our pilot, who was thrust through the back with a fish's rib. All that day following, and the night after, we lodged in our trenches, and set on end a dry backbone of a dolphin instead of a trophy. The next morrow the rest of the country people, perceiving what had happened, came to assault us. The Terracanians were ranged in the right wing, with Palamas their captain. The Thinocephalians were placed in the left wing. The Carcinocarians made up the main battle. For the Tritonomendatans stirred not, neither would they join with either part. About the temple of Neptune we met with them, and joined fight with a great cry, which was answered with an echo out of the whale as if it had been out of a cave. But we soon put them into flight, being naked people, and chased them into the wood, making ourselves masters of the country. Soon after they sent ambassadors to us to crave the bodies of the dead, and to treat upon conditions of peace. But we had no purpose to hold friendship with them, but set upon them the next day, and put them all to the sword, except the Tritobendatans, who, seeing how it fared with the rest of their fellows, fled away through the gills of the fish, and cast themselves into the sea. Then we travelled all the country over, which was now desert, and dwelt there afterwards without fear of enemies, spending the time in exercise of the body and in hunting, in planting vineyards and gathering fruit of the trees, like such men as live delicately and have the world at will, in a spacious and unavoidable prison. This kind of life we led for a year and eight months. But when the fifth day of the ninth month was over, about the time of the second opening of the mouth, or so the whale did once every hour, whereby we conjectured how the hours went away, I say about the second opening, upon a sudden we heard a great cry and a mighty noise like the calls of mariners and the stirring of oars, which troubled us not a little. Wherefore we crept up to the very mouth of the fish, and standing within his teeth saw the strangest sight that I ever beheld. Men of monstrous greatness, half a furlong in stature, sailing upon mighty great islands as if they were upon shipboard. I know you will think this smells like a lie, but yet you shall have it. The islands were of a good length indeed, but not very high, containing about an hundred furlongs in compass. Every one of these carried of those kinds of men eight and twenty, of which some sat on either side of the island and rode in their course with great cypress trees, branches, leaves, and all, instead of oars. On the stern, or hinder part, as I take it, stood the governor upon a high hill, with the brazen rudder of a furlong in length in his hand. On the fore part stood forty such fellows as those, armed for the fight, resembling men in all points but in their hair, which was all fire and burnt clearly, so that they needed no helmets. Instead of sails, the wood growing in the island did serve their turns, for the wind blowing against it drove forward the island like a ship, and carried it which way the governor would have it. For they had pilots to direct them, and were as nimble to be stirred with oars as any longboat. At the first we had the sight of but two or three of them. Afterwards appeared no less than six hundred, which, dividing themselves in two parts, prepared for encounter, 
in which many of them, by meeting with their barks together, were broken in pieces. Many were turned over and drowned. They that closed fought lustily and would not easily be parted, for the soldiers in the front showed a great deal of valor, entering one upon another, and killed all they could, for none were taken prisoners. Instead of iron grapples, they had mighty great polypodes, fast tied, which they cast at the other, and if they once laid hold on the wood, they made the isle sure enough for stirring. They darted and wounded one another with oysters that would fill a wain, and sponges as big as an acre. The leader on the one side was Aliocentaurus, and of the other, Thalassopotes. The quarrel, as it seems, grew about taking a booty, for they said that Thalassopotes drove away many flocks of dolphins that belonged to Aliocentaurus, as we heard by their clamors one to another, and calling upon the names of their kings. But Aliocentaurus had the better of the day, and sunk one hundred and fifty of the enemy's islands, and three they took with the men and all. The rest withdrew themselves and fled, whom the other pursued, but not far, because it grew toward evening. But returned to those that were wrecked and broken, which they also recovered for the most part, and took their own away with them, for on their part there were no less than fourscore islands drowned. Then they erected a trophy for a monument of this island fight, and fastened one of the enemy's islands with a stake upon the head of the whale. That night they lodged close by the beast, casting their cables about him, and anchored near unto him. Their anchors are huge and great, made of glass, but of a wonderful strength. The morrow after, when they had sacrificed upon the top of the whale, and there buried their dead, they sailed away, with great triumph and songs of victory. And this was the manner of the island's fight. This is the end of Lucian's A True History, Part 1.